hello and welcome back to the Ken Talk podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Lagori. I'm Ria Jen. And I'm Sia. We recently interviewed Dr. Russ Alger, Associate Professor of Chemistry at University of British Columbia. Dr. Alger earned his PhD at the University of Toronto and currently researches luminescent material and photoluminescence with his research group at UBC. Today, we will be breaking down his interview from the early days of his career to his current research. We hope you enjoy. Today, we're interviewing Dr. Russ Alger, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about his research and his education and how he got to where he is. So, Dr. Alger. Hello, great to be here. I did my undergrad at the University of Toronto, and then I liked it so much, I stayed for a master's and a PhD, both in analytical chemistry. And then after that, I went to do a postdoc in the United States at the U.S. Naval Research Lab, their Center for Biomolecular Science and Engineering. And then from there, I moved to UBC, where I'm currently a professor of chemistry. I actually found it really interesting to learn that Dr. Alger loved his experience as an undergraduate so much that he decided to stay for his master's and PhD too. I know, right, like his experience at university must have been quite awesome for him to stay. Definitely. And he currently does research at UBC with students from all levels of study and researches luminescent materials and their properties. Photoluminescence is an amazing phenomenon where a molecule is able to emit light. We asked Dr. Alger what bioluminescence really is. So in order to have luminescence, at least photoluminescence, it has to be able to absorb light to start with. So you need a molecule that can absorb light. In many cases, if you see something colored, it has the potential to absorb light. And then when it absorbs that light, most molecules want to get rid of that energy and return to a lower energy state. And the majority of them will do that by what we'd call in fancy words, thermalization, which is just give off heat to the surroundings. Uh, but certain molecules don't do this very efficiently. Instead, they get rid of some of that energy by emitting a different color of light. And that's the idea behind the photoluminescence. Okay, so the molecule absorbs light and then emits it. (laughs) Well, it's something like that. From speaking with Dr. Alger and also doing some reading on his website, the basis of what he researches is fluorescence. Fluorescence is the property of a material due to which it is able to emit light when it is excited or simply hit with energy by using x-rays, electrons, or other particles. It is very widely used to analyze different types of molecules and is a staple in analytical chemistry. It's really wonderful how Dr. Alger studies it, considering he's been a fanatic of analytical chemistry ever since high school. Yeah, that is so cool. Yeah, like totally. But what about wavelength? I've studied at school how light has different wavelengths and that affects its reflective properties. Oh, yeah, true. I've studied about how the wavelength of light is what decides its colors. Does it maybe affect fluorescence too? Yeah, it definitely factors in. The molecule actually absorbs light of one wavelength and emits it to another. In fact, it forms the basis of fluorescence spectroscopy, the technique that Dr. Alger uses to study these materials. He talks about it a bit in our interview. Basically, measuring something as a function of energy. In many cases, that's going to be in terms of light energy. And so in fluorescence spectroscopy, for example, which is a type of photoluminescence, you're going to often look at, well, what wavelengths that you shine on your sample are going to induce fluorescence, and then what wavelengths or colors of fluorescence come out when you put those different wavelengths of light onto that sample. Okay, I'm going to need some explaining here. What exactly is spectroscopy? Well, it sounds complex, but it's actually really simple. 
Spectroscopy is a method that scientists use to study matter that is too small to be seen with the naked eye, like atoms. They basically shine light on what they need to observe, and it helps them know about different properties like composition and behavior. It's like shining a flashlight on something to see what the object looks like, but the light is invisible to us. Yes, exactly. It's basically about studying the kind of light that the matter absorbs and the kind it emits in terms of the wavelength of frequency of light. That sounds so interesting. So it's this technique that Dr. Olga uses to study his materials? Yep. He makes use of a type of spectroscopy called fluorescent spectroscopy. Right. You mentioned that before. How exactly does that differ from the regular spectroscopy? Well, it doesn't exactly differ. It's just the method of spectroscopy being used to study fluorescence and fluorescent materials. Yeah, uh, Dr. Alka also talked about how he tries to measure different properties of the emitted light, like intensity and color, in order to get more information about the sample. It's honestly so amazing that fluorescent spectroscopy makes that possible. I know, right? Wavelength is also a big thing that is studied in spectroscopy. But talking about that, actually, there are many advantages of using the method over others available. Dr. Alger explains it a bit. Yeah, so I'll, I'll be diplomatic and say that there's a good time and a place for every analytical technique. Uh, but that for us is there are a lot of advantages. And I can give you a few just offhand, one of which is the idea that you could call it a non-contact or a non-invasive method. All you really needed to be able to do is get light in and out of your sample. There's many different ways to do that. And so that's great for something biological where you maybe don't want to stab a cell or a tissue. You just want to shine light on it and look at the light coming back. You can also combine it with microscopy. So if you're looking at tiny things, as one tends to do in biological research, it's a great tool for that. In fact, it's been incredibly important for the development of biological life sciences as well. Another thing, as we just mentioned, there's many different ways to measure it, whether it's intensity, color, or wavelength, or time-based response, or this polarization concept. There's many ways to measure it. It's also really nicely sensitive. You can actually detect fluorescence emitted from a single molecule. So you could literally count molecules one at a time with the right sort of experiment. And so it's beautifully sensitive and has a whole bunch of other advantages. Man, it's so good how you both get to work with such cool stuff. We don't have access to all this in high school. Actually, I don't think I've ever used spectroscopy before. Here's to holding out for college, I guess. Trust me, you won't be saying that after you learn NMR. It's interesting how Sia mentioned access, although Dr. Auger talked about how scientific innovations in general need to be made more accessible outside of research and development labs. Yeah, for sure. Imagine if this technology was available to more scientists, or maybe if it was made simpler to use and handle. Wait, it's so crazy that not even all scientists can access this. I know, like, it's definitely a real problem. I feel like it suppresses experimentation in a way too. If you think about it, because a very less number of researchers are able to work with, like, updated equipment. I think that's something that we've discussed at ChemTalk a lot too, you know, like, the accessibility in STEM and the importance of technological development. Definitely. And, like, as a student too, I feel it would be so much more beneficial if you were working with newer and more relevant students at school. Exactly. That's what Dr. Alger emphasizes on, like how we need to be using these newer technologies more, how we need to increase their accessibility and distribution, and also how we need to make our materials better to have them do what we want them to do. So what kind of materials does he use in his lab? 
I remember from talking about traditional materials and how he prefers to work instead with different ones. Yeah, he talks about how he uses non-traditional materials for his research. Let's listen to him talk about it. So the, the traditional ones are what you would call fluorescent dyes. So these are small molecules that will absorb and emit light or fluorescent proteins, which are basically proteins that have a small molecule like that at their core. And so these have been used for decades. They're wonderful in many applications, but they're the historical norm. And so most of our work is done with what we would call emerging or non-traditional materials, things like different types of luminescent nanoparticles, some types of lanthanide complexes, and these will absorb and emit different colors of light, much like a fluorescent dye or fluorescent protein, but they do so with different properties. So there's something about the nature of the color of the light or how long that light lasts or other properties of the light that make them advantageous versus fluorescent dyes and fluorescent proteins in certain applications. And so for a lot of the research we do, we're trying to match the special properties of these unique materials with an application so we can do something that wasn't possible with fluorescent dyes and fluorescent proteins. Wait, so essentially non-traditional materials are an improvement on existing ones, right? Um, well, yes, but they're also different materials altogether with different properties. Traditional materials would be dyes and proteins which show fluorescence, while non-traditional ones would be something like luminescent nanoparticles. Exactly. They function completely differently and allow for much more room in terms of usage and application. Speaking of application, I actually loved how Dr. Alka talked about extending this technology into rural areas and third world countries where access is maybe relatively limited. You're talking about the phone, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, wow, that's possible. I don't know about loss. What are you guys talking about again? Okay, okay. So, Sia, imagine a phone capable of medical diagnosis. A what now? Like, I know it's so damn cool. Dr. Algo told us about how he's working on this mobile that could actually diagnose people's diseases and then help them transfer that information to their doctor. Damn, and this works on the principle of fluorescence as well. Yep, specifically it makes use of something called flow cytometry. Let's hear him talk about it a bit. In this research, we're really trying to do, I think, three major things. One of which I already mentioned is this idea of translating lab-based methods that are potentially expensive or very sophisticated in technology or require a highly trained person to run onto platforms like smartphones that can be used outside of a lab So. You know, it's great if you live in a city with lots of resources where you can go, you know, a short walk or drive or transit trip to find something like a blood test to make sure that you're healthy or help diagnose the disease. But there are plenty of rural and remote communities in Canada and the United States where that's not an option. They have to travel for hours and hours to go to a lab facility that's capable of doing these methods. There's lots of places around the world that have similar issues with resources where they don't have lab facilities for a lot of these tests that we take for granted. In contrast, something like a smartphone is highly ubiquitous around the world. There's a variety of disturbing stats about how, you know, smartphones are more accessible than clean water in some places or, you know, sanitary plumbing and things like that. And so they're out there. So let's use them to try and bring the lab to people where they have the need for lab capabilities. So trying to do medical diagnostics, detect biomarkers, so molecules that indicate health or disease on a smartphone using fluorescence enabled by these non-traditional fluorescent materials. And so one of the recent things we did with this was uh, 
to do a, a very rudimentary level of what's called flow cytometry on a smartphone. And so flow cytometry is a lab-based technique typically. It's got a big giant instrument that costs anywhere from 100000 up to millions of dollars, depending on all the features you have on it. Requires a pretty skilled operator to run. And it basically gets the cells to line up single file and then analyzes them by fluorescence one by one, looking at the colors of fluorescence given off and what intensity. And that tells uh, scientists about what molecules are associated with those cells because we can label them with different colors of fluorescence. And then we can look at that and say, that's a healthy cell. That's a disease cell. This is one type of cell. This is a different type of cell. Um, and so we've actually been able to do this on a smartphone now. Now, we're not quite at the level of these million-dollar flow cytometers, but we actually can do flow cytometry on a smartphone. So this would be an incredible technique uh, for bringing to rural and remote communities or low-resource communities around the world where you can start to do things like diagnosing immune disorders. You can start to look at potentially early detection of cancer through circulating tumor cells. You can look at fetal injury. Uh, there's a variety of things you can do with this um, as a technology that doesn't have to be in a lab with highly trained people anymore with high cost and everything else. So that's one area of research for sure. Oh, so he basically uses this flow cytometry thing to enable phone to make medical diagnosis. Yeah, exactly. And this works on fluorescence too. Yeah, um, as Dr. Algar explains, it's basically a technique that is used to analyze chemical properties of cells. It can give you information about the cell's interior, its size, structure, stuff like that. This helps us identify different types of diseases. Yeah, exactly. While the process is a bit complicated, what essentially happens in flow cytometry is that a sample of cells is suspended in a fluid, which is then injected into an instrument called a flow cytometer. Wow, you know, it's actually so cool to be able to see a real-life application of a concept based on chemistry. Like, it's amazing how even the basic concept like fluorescence can have like such a big impact on the medical field. I agree. I mean, in university, you're learning about these complex methods and techniques a lot. So it's really kind of motivating when you get to talk to people who are actually applying them to make such an impact or even day-to-day -day normal life products. Okay, like... I wonder though, would it have been possible for Dr. Alger to find this out through a theoretical way? Was it necessary to perform a lot of experiments? Because those sound kind of expensive. Dr. Alger specializes in analytical chemistry, which is basically all about experiments. There's something he emphasizes on a lot too, hands-on work. In the interview, he talked about how it was really only after his first lab experience during his undergrad that he realized he wanted to pursue a career in research. Let's hear him talk about it. When you're working with um, so many students, do you think that the premise of analytical chemistry tends to maybe seem daunting? Because I know like a lot of us like, in high school or maybe even college like, tend to think of it as really mathematical so, and computational. So how do you navigate that? How do you kind of you know, dissipate the fear around analytical chemistry? Yeah, it's, at the graduate level, it's a bit of self-selection. So the people that I tend to contact or that contact me tend to have shown some level of interest in the research that we do, whether that's from the analytical side, or the physical chemistry side, or the materials chemistry side. You know, there's some natural interest there. Um, at the undergraduate level, I know exactly where you're coming from. Analytical sometimes has a bad rap. Um, Honestly, I think it's because it needs to be taught a little bit differently in the introductory analytical course. It's, you know, it's 
about measuring molecules and atoms. What type are there and how many are there? And there's not one branch of science that doesn't need to do that at some level. And so it should be a course that everyone's excited about and sees the immediately usefulness for that. Um, but unfortunately, you know, it's almost taught like a history curriculum where your first analytical course is like the classical volumetric method of analysis. And you're looking at that and saying, this is boring. And I can't lie and disagree. And you're seeing it in this very narrow scope and you're not really getting the impact of, well, how is this impacting multidisciplinary science? How is this being used in real world? How is this impacting society? Um, and so, yeah, you get this bad reputation. And I think if we could just jump to what's typically the second course in alcohol chemistry, where you start to see all the technology that comes in and how that can be used for so many different applications and how so many different branches of science leverage that technology, that will get students more excited. Um, you know, chemistry, they say, is a central science. Well, analytical is the central science of the central science. It's like you bring in organic chem, you bring in inorganic chem, bring in physical chemistry, you bring in the physics and the biology and the engineering to make things work. So you can basically do the impossible task of figuring out how many molecules and atoms and what type are there. And so I think there's better ways to teach it. And I think that would help students get excited about it. And with the math, you know, I got to say that high school me would probably just destroy me, current me on any math tests. Um, so the math, I don't think is that bad, but I think we need to find good ways to teach it so that it links up with a, a qualitative concept. Because if you just think of the math as a way of quantifying a concept, it's much easier to establish a link and, and work through it than if you think of it as something separate from the concept. I think we need better ways to, to teach it at that introductory level so that we can get people excited and to see that it's really just chemistry and science like any other course that they're excited about. It doesn't need to be scary. See, exactly. Like, I agree on how it's really important to get as much lab work in as you can. I relate to that. Like, my favorite part of chem class in high school was definitely doing all those experiments. I think it really helps you see chemistry in real life outside just the theory part of it. Uh, Ria, I agree with you, but all those lab reports... Yeah, I know. But imagine trying to make a bottle of soda without knowing about what carbonated water is or how to flavor it. You see what I mean? Yeah, I get that. But I feel most students may be shy away from analytical chemistry due to this as well. Like, I know some classmates who feel the need to round off our conclusions to match what's been written in the theory. Oh, yeah. Like, I get that completely. I think sometimes we focus on the theory so much that that we get anxious about the results of our experiments um, in the cases when they aren't exactly what's written in the textbooks. Yeah, that's what is so scary about chem sometimes. Like all the numbers are the need to be so precise and accurate. Well, yeah. Fortunately, there's not formal lab reports that you're being graded on in the real world, but chemphobia definitely does exist. That's the fear of chemistry. Wow, there's an actual term for it. Well, yeah, but that's what's so interesting about analytical chemistry, like what Dr. What Dr. Alga studies. Like in our discussion with him, he told us about how it mainly revolves around doing experiments. So students need to be encouraged to learn the subject by experimenting around themselves rather than with the textbook. In our chem talk, we work towards busting such misconceptions as well. Yes, and it was so inspiring to hear about how he developed his passion for analytical chemistry in high school. 
Like I'm in high school right now too and it was so good to hear about his experience in school and how it shaped him. I feel it was really helpful. Yeah, and I feel like on that topic, he gave really good advice to high school students as well in the interview. Let's hear him talk about it. You know, I think it's a lot about keeping an open mind because you can be interested in something and you can get a teacher and, you know, they can maybe not be the best teacher in the world or it can be taught in a really challenging way and you say, oh, I don't like this or, oh, I'm not good at this. And you sort of forget about it. Likewise, you can not be interested in something or you think you're not interested in something. Then you get a really inspiring teacher and he's like, oh, wow, this really opened my eyes to something. So I think trying to keep an open mind as long as possible is good. And also try to do as much research as you can early on about the different career paths you can think of. Um, because undergrad, unfortunately, is a time where you can actually start to close doors by making certain decisions about what courses you take or what experiences you do or do not engage in. Um, and so you really want to be aware of the things you should be doing to keep doors open to different careers earlier rather than later. Um, so I think it's talking to as many people as you can, whether they're more senior students, whether they're instructors, whether you have other support structures at your institution to you know, help guide you, high school, your guidance counselors. Uh, internet's great, something that the older generation didn't really have. Like you can start to look up a lot of the things that you would need to do for different careers and try and balance those as, as much as you can. That said, it's never really too late. If you really like something and have the energy and drive, you can usually find your way into it eventually. Uh, but you can make it easier by doing some research ahead of time just to know what the expectations are for different areas. I completely agree with what he said. As a current senior in college about to graduate, there are a lot of things that I feel I wanted to do as a freshman that I definitely do not want to do anymore. So really just by taking classes and experiencing things you know, talking to different people, things like that. I realized certain things weren't for me and I also found my passion. Yeah, exactly. My high school journey was like that too, you know, like trying to figure out what to do. And I feel like taking courses and really diving into things that I thought I found interesting kind of helped clear the road and made me decide what I wanted to do. Well, I spent my first few years of high school in the pandemic and boy, did I miss out on a lot of terms but a lot in terms of such opportunities. I have to catch up on a lot of important concepts and experiments that I missed before my junior year and that too on my own. It's so stressful, especially because I have to do all of this by myself with no access to a lab. Yeah, labs are super crucial. Sia, my friend Nav from ChemTalk is a biochem major and I remember her telling me that not having access to a lab during the pandemic was really detrimental to her education. Growing up as a dancer, she's a very visual and hands-on learner and not having that key educational learning environment made it more difficult to learn concepts for her. Online labs were in use instead and while intriguing, they did little to aid her in her studies. Yeah, I think I do kind of love that scientists, like at least nowadays, are focusing more on making the new technology cheaper and more accessible. I hope it allows students to keep up with the current technology and maybe use it more easily. Yeah, and that's just another reason I like working at ChemTalk. Like, although we can't provide a lot through our virtual medium for chemistry, we offer tons of free resources, especially our interactive periodic table that helps students and teachers all over the world. Yeah, tell me about it. Another major topic that Dr. Alger talked about throughout his interview was optimization. 
which is possibly the most crucial aspect of modern science. Well, that's interesting. But like, in what sense are you referring to optimization? Optimization is the best way to do something or tackle a problem, especially when there's a lack of resources, time, or other such limitations. It involves evaluating various possibilities to find what works best and achieve certain objectives depending on the motive, such as maximum profit and minimum expenditure on raw materials, etc. Yeah, it's often used in STEM to produce better methods and resources for research, along with finding the best method to adopt, keeping funding in mind. Oh, that makes sense. I like how scientists nowadays, they're more conscious about the environment and the resources we have left, as well as like they ensure that they come up with alternatives for research that would be either accessible and affordable for people all around the world. Yeah, I feel like with the rise of globalization, um, in these past years, people in science have also begun collaborating with other scientists from uh, like all over the world, and it has accelerated development in science. So, in essence, their collective motive to use what they have with optimization and ensure its accessibility has not only helped with sustainability, but also with collaboration and collective benefits are received from developing together in the end. So, it's a win-win. That's definitely a great way to look at it. I mean, science is becoming more and more accessible for people all around the world. Everything you want to learn is available on the internet and collaboration is actually encouraged. While some people might participate in optimization due to lack of resources or funds, it has definitely helped open numerous possibilities for others. Well, that brings us to the end of our conversation with Dr. Alger and his research in photoluminescence. We hope you've enjoyed today's podcast, and I think that we all learned a lot from Dr. Alger. For chemistry help, please go to our website, www.chemistrytalk.org. Until next time, bye.